pray together. Father, we praise you for you are good. We praise you and we thank you for the love that you have for us, the love that was shown to us by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Father, I just pray that the service and this message will, will honor and glorify you. God, I pray and I just, I just thank you for your word. We thank you for the many uh, truths that are revealed about who you are. And Lord, as we look and talk about faith and belief this morning, I pray that at the end of this message we can just examine our own faith and ask the question, do we live out what we believe? So Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit will convict us if we need convicting. I pray the Holy Spirit will give us joy if we need joy. And Lord, I just pray that we can be reminded of the love we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, hopefully you're still there in John chapter 4. We're continuing our series through his gospel. And I want to start off by sharing a story that I love sharing with the youth group students. And I don't know if I shared it in a previous sermon, but I was like, I'll share it anyway. It's the story of a man named Charles Blondin. He was a French acrobat, and this is a real story, and, and, and this was earlier in like the 1900s. What he would do is he would set up a tightrope and he would walk across Niagara Falls. He'd start on one side, he'd walk across, and then go back to where he started. And every year he seemed to up the ante or up the challenge a little bit. So the first year he went there and he says, does anybody think that I can do this? And people are clapping, yeah, we believe you can do it. So he walks across the tightrope and then he, he walks back. The people are cheering, they're going nuts, they're, they're going crazy. The next year he says, how many of you think I can do this blindfolded? They're like, yeah, Blondin, you can do it, we believe. So he puts his blindfold on, he goes across the tightrope and he walks back flawlessly. The next week he says, how many of you think I could push this wheelbarrow across the tightrope? They're like, Blondin, we believe, yes, you can do it. You're so good. You're great. So what does he do? The next year he goes like this. Or he's not blindfolded. But I don't know why I close my eyes. He, puts the, he, he goes across with the wheelbarrow. The next year he comes back. How many of you saw me last year with the wheelbarrow? Yeah, Blondin, yeah. How many of you believe I can put somebody in it and push them across? Yeah, Blondin, we believe you can do it. And then what he said shocked the crowd. He's like, okay, any volunteers? Right? The crowd, which was roaring with excitement, was silent. Why? Because they weren't able to live up or live out the faith that they had in the great Blondin, the tightrope walker. And I feel like a lot of times that happens in our lives, especially when it comes to faith. As we are walking through John's Gospel, John's Gospel talks a lot about belief, a lot about unbelief, a lot about faith. And we're going to continue in it, and we're going to see an encounter with a certain man, a father. But before we get there, we've already seen a bunch of different characters, a bunch of different people in the gospel so far with different tiers of levels of unbelief. And, and here's what I mean by that. So I will say there's, there's a couple of different tiers when it comes to unbelief. The first reason why some people might not believe is a lack of exposure. These are people whose hearts are prepared and they're ready to receive Christ. They just need to see Him. They need the exposure. I think about the disciples Andrew and John. In chapter 1, Andrew and John were the disciples of John the Baptist. 
And John the Baptist looks at Jesus, points to him, and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's saying, This is the long-awaited Messiah. I'm a no one. He's everything. He's the promised one we're waiting for. And what happens is Andrew and John now ditch John the Baptist, and he welcomes it. And they what? They follow Jesus. They go to Jesus, and Jesus says, follow me, and they follow him. Right? They had a lack of exposure, and then when they saw Jesus, they went to him. The second tier, as we move a little bit deeper or, or harder in unbelief, is a lack of information. These are people who need to hear the word of God. I think about the woman at the well. She, she knew the Word of God, right? She, they, she knew the Old Testament. She knew the Messiah was coming. She saw Jesus, but it took a conversation. It took having to, to, to talk with Jesus to listen to the Word talk and to reveal Himself as the Messiah. And what we learned about that is she went away rejoicing that she met the Messiah and she brought the whole town back with her. And the town was transformed. The next tier that we see in John's Gospel so far are those who have a lack of evidence. They have an unbelief because of a lack of evidence. They need to see the works of Jesus. They need to be convinced. I think of Nicodemus. If you remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he calls Jesus someone who is sent from God. He talked with Jesus. He saw Jesus. And it took a long conversation with Jesus, and I would argue that towards the end of John's Gospel, we'll see Nicodemus again, and I would argue that through seeing Jesus' continued ministry and the healings and the miracles and seeing and listening to Jesus, I believe he came to a genuine saving faith as we revisit or we'll see him at the end of John's Gospel. Also, this father that we see here today in the text fits into this category. And the fourth tier of unbelief that we see in John's Gospel which is the, the hardest or the most intense unbelief, is those who have a deliberate hard heart. Those who have that no amount of evidence will suffice. No matter what Jesus does, they're not going to believe. They reject His claims. And I think the obvious answer, who fits in this category, is the Pharisees. Over and over again, Jesus does amazing miracles. The Pharisees don't call out Jesus as a phony. They don't actually attack his miracles. Why? Because there's so much evidence that what he did actually happened. They attack where his power comes from. They attribute that he has power from the devil, not God. But they never discounted his miracles. Neither did the people in society. They flocked to him. But here throughout John's Gospel, we'll see those who no amount of miracles, no amount of evidence will ever prove to them that Jesus is who he says he is. And this morning here, we're going to see the request from a desperate father. And before we go any further, I just want to read verses 43 and 45 again. And what this section is, this section is a transition that connects from last week's sermon to now where we're going to be heading to today. So verse 43 of John chapter 4. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So over the past couple of weeks, we were at the woman at the well, which is in the, in the town called Sychar, which is in the region of Samaria. 
And Jesus spent two days there, and that's what it says, after two days. So Jesus went back. He was always was making his way to Galilee. He had a pit stop, that divine appointment with the woman at the well. And really, what I want to say in this first point is what we're going to see in these two texts is a contrasting faith, or a difference of faiths. Jesus, spending the two days in Sychar, two days with the Samaritans, the Samaritans welcomed Jesus. They invited Jesus, a Jew, to stay for two additional days in their countryside. They believed that Jesus was truly the Savior of the world because of His Word. If you remember, the the woman goes into the town, she shares her testimony, come see a man who's told me everything about myself. That was her testimony, that was it. No deep theology, no, no convincing, an invitation to come see, could this be the Messiah? And the whole town comes to Jesus, and it says that they believed in Him, not because of the woman's testimony anymore, but because of Jesus' word, because of what Jesus had spoken to them. Their faith was transformed, and they rightfully so claimed that Jesus is the Savior of the world. These Samaritans, again as a recap, these Samaritans were people that the Jewish people looked at as abominations before God. These were people, the Samaritans according to Jewish people, were so ceremonially unclean that if you were even in their countryside, you had to go through some some sort of ritualistic cleansing before you worship the Lord. They had racial hatred towards the Samaritan people. They weren't friends, they were enemies. But the people who the Jews saw as an abomination, those who are not worthy of God's love, of God's grace, they came to know Jesus as their Messiah. And actually, the Samaritan woman, the sinful woman at the well, was the first person publicly that Jesus declared himself to be the Messiah to. And with that is even just, we talked about this last week, it's a little bit of God's grace. That Jesus is not just the Savior for the Jewish people. The Messiah was not just for the Jews. The Messiah, Jesus, is the Savior of the world. Meaning, all cultures, all peoples. So on the, on the first side, you have the Samaritan's faith. And I would say this, they get it right. They met with Jesus, they talked with Jesus, and they believed because of Jesus' word. Now on the flip side... We have a little bit of of, of some clues and some context. We see the Galileans' faith, the Jewish people's faith, these Jews living in Galilee. In the verses we just read, it says that uh, John adds this in, but it says that for Jesus himself had testified that no prophet has honor in his hometown. Now, Nazareth is in the region of Galilee, and that's where Jesus grew up. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 24, you don't have to turn there, but maybe if you want to write it down for later, Jesus preaches his first sermon in Nazareth. At the end of the sermon, the people were outraged with anger that they drove him to the edge of a cliff to try to push him off. They hated him. They rejected what he said, what he revealed about himself. And we read that Jesus just what? He, He walked through their midst and went away. Right, Right there, Jesus would receive no honor, no glory for being the Messiah. And, and here where it could get a little confusing. Because in verse 45, it seems like it's a little bit of a contradiction. John says he has no glory, he has no honor, he's not welcomed in his hometown. 
Yet in verse 45 it says, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. Now if you remember, Jesus turns water into wine. He's in Cana in Galilee. He goes down to the temple for Passover to celebrate. He cleanses the, the, the evil and wicked worship the, 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 uh, the, the people who are selling and making money and ripping people off in the, in the temple, he, he, what, he chases them out. And then it says he stays in Jerusalem during the Passover week and he does all these miracles. It says when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And when we talked about that, that was in the end of chapter 2, and we talked about that, we looked at the fact that these people, they liked Jesus, they believed in Jesus as a miracle man. Not the Messiah, not the Savior. They believed in Jesus as one who had power to heal, one who had power to do things, but he wasn't God. They had a superficial and a shallow faith. Now in Galilee, where we are in, in, in verse 45, it says that they welcomed him. Because why? These are the same group of people, I'm sure most of them are the same groups of people that were at that feast seeing the miracles that Jesus was doing. And they went back into their homes and they told people about this miracle man, this miracle worker named Jesus. So I'll say this, they welcomed Jesus with a warm welcome as a miracle man. Right? They, they flock, they cling to him because he's doing amazing, extraordinary things. But that's all he was to them. They didn't have faith or believe in him as the Messiah. They didn't believe that he was God. So for these people, and the people that Jesus is talking to, they viewed him as a miracle worker, and that was it. They had this shallow faith in what they could see Jesus do, and that was the extent of what they believed about Jesus. And again, here in John's Gospel so far with the Samaritans and the Galileans, we see these two different faiths from these two different people and who Jesus is. The Samaritans, again, they believe Jesus is the Savior of the world because of His Word. Jesus didn't perform miracles. Jesus didn't do any extraordinary, amazing things in their presence. The text doesn't say that. It says, by His Word they believed and they asked Him, Jesus, can you stay with us for two more days? And on the flip side, the Galileans rejoiced in Jesus, the miracle man. Jesus, the miracle worker, but they didn't give him the glory and the honor, and they never would as their Messiah. And I'm talking like, you have some individuals who might and may, but the majority, right, to, to say most of them didn't welcome him and give him glory and honor as their Messiah. And as I was working through these, 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 this, these verses, it just got me thinking, how do we view Jesus? How, how do you, how do I view Jesus? How do other people view Jesus? Some people view Jesus as just a really nice, good, morally man. The problem with that is Jesus claimed to be God. He, he claimed to be the Messiah. He made outrageous claims that no man in their right mind would make. Not only that, you're denying his divinity. Some people believe that Jesus was, as Nicodemus says in chapter 3, a man sent from God, a, a prophet, someone who, who God has favor with. The issue with that is you're rejecting what Jesus said. He says, I am God. I and the Father are one. 
As Christians, how are we to view Jesus? He is God. He is our Savior. He is the one who came and died on the cross to save us from our sins. To make a way so that we can be reconciled to God. Be made right before God. Again, it's important how we view Jesus. But not only that, it's important to live out your faith. Before Facebook, there was MySpace. Does anybody remember, remember MySpace? You could raise your hand. Yeah, some of us remember MySpace. Some of you are like, what space? What are you talking about? It's basically the same as Facebook, but MySpace would allow you to have like a profile song so when you went to someone's profile, it would automatically play a song. And if you forgot and your speakers were really loud, it would give you a little jump scare. But not only that, I remember they used to always have like your religious affiliation. And I would say that 99% of my friends put Christian. And they were proud to put Christian. And I'll say this, they weren't Christians based on how they treated people, based on how they talked, based on how they lived out their lives. They had this shallow or superficial view of who Jesus was. Right? Some people are like, oh yeah, I believe that Jesus was real, and yeah, he died on the cross, that's a nice story, like he was a good guy, yeah, yeah, I, I think he's good, yeah, I believe in Jesus. The problem with that is they're denying Jesus as their Lord. They're denying him as their Savior. So it's important, how do we view Jesus? How do the people we talk to view Jesus? As we share the gospel with them, it's important to meet them at a level. Right? If someone denies that Jesus is God, then you talk about them and you share why the Bible says Jesus is God. Right? So you walk people through their faith or you walk them through their unbelief. But it all comes to this question, how do you view Jesus? So the first thing we see here in this transitional verses, we see a, a, a contrast of the Samaritans' people faith to now we're going to see the Galileans' faith and we're going to see one individual man. And I will say this, number two in your notes, it's a desperate father. A desperate father. Let's pick up on verse 46. So Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made water wine. And at uh, uh, Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Here in Galilee, Jesus is approached by an official. Now some translations might say a royal official. It might say a nobleman. But regardless of what your translation says, he's approached by an official, by a father, with a request. And here's his request. His request is he asks Jesus to travel with him from Cana to Capernaum, which is about 16 miles away, to go and to heal his dying son. We see here a father requesting a miracle from the miracle maker. Maybe this father, maybe this official, maybe he heard stories about what Jesus did in Jerusalem. Maybe he heard about what happened at the wedding in Canaan. Maybe word was spreading and Jesus' fame and popularity was growing. And there's that, that, that slight you know, glimmer of hope. This miracle man might be able to save my dying son. All this father knows about Jesus is that he has a dying son 
And this Jesus has healed people. This Jesus has done mighty miracles. Maybe he'll come with me and heal my boy. Now I want you to notice something. A lot of times you read this and, and you might say, wow, look at, look at the faith of the man. Maybe you could read it in that lens, but I'll say this. Look at the lack of faith in the start of the story from this man, from the official. In verse 47, he asked Jesus for a miracle, but he asks Jesus to come with him. He says, Jesus, can you come back to my hometown? Can you walk and travel six hours with me to be with my boy to heal him? He then asks Jesus to heal his son before he dies. Come quickly, he's going to die. He tells Jesus how he wants the miracle to happen. And through this request, I'll say this, we see a lack of faith. We see a lack of unbelief. We have Jesus in this man's eyes. Jesus, the miracle man, he believes that he has to be present for these miracles to take place. That Jesus has to see the boy to heal him. But not only that, he has to do it soon because once his son dies, he doesn't think that Jesus, this miracle man, can do anything. He doesn't think any miracle can save his dead son. But not only in verse 47, right? So we see a little glimpse of this man's request. We see a little bit of unbelief there. But also in verse 48, Jesus rebukes the man. It says this, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This sounds like a rebuke, like a negative, like Jesus isn't going to do it. And if you study the language here, that, that you is, a, is plural. Some translations might say, you people won't believe unless you see signs and wonders. And what Jesus is doing is he's using this man's lack of faith as a bigger picture for the Galilean crowd around. This man perfect, perfectly capsulates and is the example of how the Galileans believe in Jesus. They believe in him as merely a miracle man, a man who has powers, a man that they want to follow because they're, they're drawn to amazing things. Listen, if someone was doing amazing things and doing these crazy miracles, I'd be, look, I'd be going to them and, and seeing what's going on. Let me check this out. I'm sure most of us would be. So the crowd's drawn to Jesus based on these miracles. So again, this official's belief in Jesus, it mimics the Galileans who are around him. They welcome Jesus. They believe in him as the miracle man, but not their Savior. The Father's request, get this too, the Father's request from Jesus had nothing to do with salvation. Had nothing to do with anything spiritual, anything godly or in that, that godly spiritual realm or eternal life, but rather it was a physical need for his son. And I do have to give the father credit here. The father did go himself to Jesus. This was a task that he said, I am doing this myself. I don't trust anybody else with this. I'm going to Jesus and I need my son healed. So I see the love and the devotion of a father whose son he's going to lose soon. In verse 49, we read this, The official said to Jesus, Sir, come before my child dies. We see the desperation from the father. As an official or a nobleman or, or a royal official, as some translations say, we know this, he's wealthy, he's powerful, he's privileged, he's a man who has authority and power and influence in society, Yet here's the truth. His money and status could not buy his son's life. It couldn't help his son. 
He probably, he probably brought doctors, the best doctors, to his son, and no one could heal him. His son was laying, dying. Out of desperation, he turns to Jesus, and he literally begs Jesus for a miracle. The wording here is when he, asked, when he first asked Jesus, it's this understanding of a repeated action. He's repeatedly saying, Jesus, please, Jesus, please, Jesus, please come down to my house. Please save my boy. Please heal him. Please. We read and we see the desperation of a loving father losing his son. After Jesus is rebuked, the father pleads one last time. And he changes his language. He uses a more intimate word than, uh, for, for, for son. He uses child. My, my baby, sir, come. My baby is going to die. It's a matter of life or death. Please. And then I love this. The third thing we see is we see Jesus' response. In verse 50, we'll see his response. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when, the, when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. What was Jesus' response? It was a miracle. There's a miracle that just took place. He says to him in verse 50, Go, your son will live. Now if you notice this, Jesus doesn't heal the man's son the way he was begged to heal him. The man begged Jesus, please come with me. Please come and see him. He'll probably say, come lay your hands on him. Do it quickly. Hurry. Instead, Jesus quite literally tells the man to continue to go about your business. Your son will live. Jesus simply spoke the word and the boy was healed. He wasn't physically there in sight of the boy. And we see here the absolute power and the authority over life and death and sickness that Jesus has. There's no limit to what He can do. As a result of His word, of His promise, right? Go, your son will live. As a result of that, I think it's extraordinary what this official did. It says the official believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now, whether he had no choice, because Jesus said, I'm not, you know, by saying this, Jesus wasn't going with him, he had to cling to that promise and that word that Jesus will do what he said he would do. That what? His son will live. In that moment, the father believed the power and the promise of Jesus' word. Get this, he believed without seeing. A lot of times, when we hear crazy stories or crazy things, you'll say something like this. I'm not going to believe it until I can see it for myself. Right? But when it comes to our faith in Jesus, our faith in God, I found this quote, this, these four words. It goes like this, Faith sees the unseen. Faith sees the unseen. As Christ followers, we, we, we don't physically see Jesus. 
we haven't physically seen Jesus. We weren't alive back then. We can't physically see God. Moses asked that of God, and God says, if you see me, you'll be dead because of my glory. But what do we have? Faith. We have the Word of God. We have the Bible. We have our faith in who God has said He is. Who Jesus has said He is. For us, faith sees the unseen. In verse 51, we'll continue here. We see the man going back. He travels back home. In verse 51, as he's going back home, his servants met him, and they said to him, your son is recovering. And the man asked the servants, when did this happen? When, when did he start to feel better? When did he start recovering? And they told them the specific hour. And in this guy's mind, he knew that was the exact moment where Jesus promised his son would live. And I have to say, what, this is amazing, what was the spiritual result of Jesus' miracle? What was the spiritual result of Jesus' miracle? It's in the second to last verse. It says, And he himself believed, and all his entire household. They all came to genuine, saving faith in Jesus. In chapter 4, we see a village transformed by their faith in Jesus. Now at the end, we see this man's household transformed by their faith in Jesus. They believe that Jesus is the Savior. He's the Messiah of the world. Not only was this father's son physically healed, but also their hearts, their whole entire household hearts were spiritually healed. They were born again. They put their faith in Jesus, not as the miracle man, but as their Messiah. If we notice the man's kind of level of, of belief in this story. He starts off going to Jesus, believing Him as a miracle man. He believes in Jesus' miracles, but there's limitations to His miracles. Then Jesus makes him a promise, and he clings to Jesus' promises. His belief is in Jesus' Word. Right? If you read it, it says, He believed in His Word. Right? So now he's believing, and he's clinging, he's hoping in Jesus, the miracle man's Word. And then he gets home, and we see, through an act of God and the Holy Spirit, we see the entire household and this man himself believed in Jesus. There's a transformation of his faith, of his belief in Jesus. Despite the man's lack of faith, his unbelief, and asking for the miracle, for the benefit of his son, right? it's not even a spiritual asking or a request for eternal life. Right? That was the conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was asking really great questions to Jesus. How do I get eternal life? What does it mean to be born again? We see Jesus healing this boy, doing a miracle. And I would say he does this miracle for the point that the entire household would believe. For this man, he was at that third tier of unbelief. He saw Jesus, he met Jesus, he talked to Jesus, but in order for him to believe, he had to see that miracle. He had to experience it. And through the Holy Spirit, leading and softening his heart and guiding him and, and God calling him to himself, we see the man came to saving faith in Jesus. His entire household was saved. The man most likely told his story of who Jesus was and what Jesus said and, and did for him. 
So we even see that this man's testimony of Jesus, like the woman's testimony in Samaria, what? It had amazing implications. It led a whole town to Jesus with a Samaritan woman, and it led his household to Jesus. It's a reminder of this, that our testimonies in Jesus are powerful. I know some of us have a, have a testimony, and you might say something like this, well, my testimony's kind of boring. I, I, I had nothing, I, I really didn't have a crazy life. You know, I, I grew up in church my whole life. I came to faith when I was seven years old. I never really, you know, I never did anything bad. I was never arrested. I was never an addict. I never was a, a, a murderer. I was just a, a good, per, I, was a, I was a good person in the eyes of the law, and I, I didn't do anything bad, and, and then I came to Christ. And some people say, my, there's no power in my testimony. That, telling someone my testimony will, will never change what they think about Jesus. I would argue that's not the case. As we looked at last week, the power's not in your testimony, but who your testimony is about. And that's Jesus Christ, who's the Savior of the world. He is God in flesh, who dwelt among us, who died on the cross to save and to redeem us. And now the passage ends with verse 54. John says this, This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he, come from, when he came from Judea to Galilee. It was the second sign in Galilee. The first sign or the first recorded miracle in John's Gospel was Jesus turning water into wine. The second is healing this official's uh, boy. In John's Gospel... Out of all the other Gospels, it has the least amount of specific, detailed miracles mentioned by what Jesus did. All the other Gospels talk about these amazing miracles, these amazing things that Jesus did. John's Gospel contains seven. And we're at chapter 5, and we already saw two of them. But John uses these miracles for a specific purpose. The point of his book is so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, He's the Savior of the world, and that believing in Him, there will be eternal life. He strategically uses and puts these miracles of Jesus in the text where they're located to prove to the point to the people reading that Jesus is God who has come to offer eternal life and has power and authority over all. A few weeks ago, I met with somebody, and, and, and this wasn't in my notes, this, came, this just came to my head, but now I'll, I'll use this to end. I met with somebody, and they said, what, what are you going through with your church? I said, oh, I'm, I'm starting off with the book of John. And he said to me, oof, that's a long book. I was like, you're right, it is. It is. It's a very long book. He's like, why don't you do like a shorter book, like a little letter or something? And my response, and I've been saying this since the beginning, why are we going through the book of John? We've been here for a few months. We're at chapter 5. If you, if you ask me, I say, wow, I can't believe we're already at chapter 5. Some of you might be like, oh my gosh, we're only at chapter 5. But why are we going through this verse by verse, story by story? I said from the beginning, John's gospel is both evangelistic and discipling. It answers the question, who is Jesus? That's the question we should all be asking ourselves. If we say we're Christians, what does it mean? Who's Jesus? Why do we follow him? But not only that, as we learn who Jesus is and read his word and, and memorize and get familiar with these stories, we can use this as what? As we evangelize. That Jesus is the word. The word made flesh. 
The Word who was with God in the beginning. The Word who was God. And why does it matter? John said it, so that you might have eternal life if you believe in His name. And when you believe in the name of Jesus, that expression, it means you're fully believing in everything that Jesus claimed to be. And every claim He made about Himself. That He is God, that He is Savior of the world, that He died on the cross, that He rose again, and that there's salvation in His name. And if you don't know the Gospel, here's some bad news. The bad news is we all die. Sorry, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but it's true. We, we all die. We all will die. The bad news is this. If you don't have faith in Jesus, the Bible says you spend an eternity without Him in a real place called hell. And here's the good news. The good news of the Gospel is that we can never be good enough. That sounds bad, but it's actually good news. We can never be good enough for God and we never have to be because Jesus came to pay the price for our sin. He came and paid it all by dying on the cross, taking on our sin and our shame on that cross, bleeding, dying, and rising again three days later, proving He is who He said He was. And John's Gospel is clear. If you believe in the name of Jesus, if you put your faith and your hope in Him and repent from your sins, turn away from your sin, it says, then you will be saved and have eternal life. And that's the beauty and the power-saving word of the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you this morning as more than just a miracle man, more than just a miracle worker. You are the Savior of the world. You are the Messiah you are God who came down from heaven and pursued us. Even while we were still enemies of the cross, Your Word says You loved us and You died for us. Jesus, I pray that as we can examine our own belief, our own faith in You this week, I pray that we can come to the conclusion and come to the encouragement that we live out our faith in You. I pray that our faith are not just mere words, or a mere anthem of what we say, but rather it's action. Rather we can show the people around us what it means to have faith in You, Jesus, as our Lord and Savior. As we looked at Your Word this morning, I'm reminded of Your grace, that You healed this man's son. You healed him. His request wasn't about spiritual things, it wasn't about eternal life, but You healed him. And through that, Lord, an entire household believed in Him, believed in You. Their household was transformed. I pray, Lord, for boldness to live out our faith. I pray, Lord, that even as we go back to work or school or hang out with friends, that we can have gospel moments, gospel conversations. God, I just pray, Lord, for this barbecue coming up on Saturday. That yes, it could be a time of fellowship, but I pray that the conversations are a blessing to you. That these conversations we have, the relationships that we make with each other in the community will glorify and honor you. I pray that we never be like the Galileans who, who don't honor you, who don't give you the glory you deserve. I pray that we always rejoice in you 
and your love for us and give you all the glory that's due to you, Jesus. And in your holy name we pray. Amen.